Get behind me, Satan. Those are words Jesus said to Peter, his disciple. Uh, but as I survey the current landscape of Christianity, I wonder if Jesus is saying it to us. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Chelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 38. Would Jesus call you Satan? Today's podcast is sponsored by the wisdom of your heart, discovering the God-given purpose and power of your emotions. Look, I hate to say it, but the truth is that many of us who grew up in the Christian church were taught a lot of garbage about feelings. Emotions are shallow, emotions aren't real, emotions are a distraction or even a temptation. You should never listen to your emotions, they can only lead you astray. Look, I grew up in that kind of environment and it did a real number on me. When painful life circumstances and then depression showed up, I didn't have the emotional skills to handle it. It was a train wreck. It took a lot of work, a lot of therapy, a lot of journaling, a lot of help from friends to get to the place where I could sit with my emotions and not be overwhelmed by them. The Wisdom of Your Heart is a book I wrote that is the fruit of that work and experience. It starts with my story, but that's just the jumping off point. I talk about emotions throughout scripture, whether or not God has emotions and why that matters, our best current understanding of what's actually happening in our brains and our bodies when we have feelings, and how we can use all of this to understand ourselves, find wisdom, and grow. I've also written a workbook that goes right along with it, the Untangled Workbook so that you can put those lessons to work, processing the hard emotions that you're experiencing in your life. And already, this is really cool, therapists across the US are using this workbook to help their clients get a better handle on what's going on inside of them. The Wisdom of Your Heart's available in all the normal places, all the online bookstores. It's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. You can get both the book and the Untangled Workbook on Amazon, which a lot of people do, but you can also go directly to my website and get a package deal that includes a signed copy of The Wisdom of Your Heart along with the workbook and at a discount. Now, when you buy my books, you're doing two things. You're getting something that will help you grow in practical ways. I try and put that into everything I do. And you're helping support the work that I do that helps other people. So that's a win for both of us. So go get a copy. I'll put links on the screen and in the show notes. I think you'll find it helpful. Today, a brief sermon or reflection or meditation or maybe a challenge from me. Would Jesus call you Satan? What about your church? I grew up with the stories of the Bible. Maybe you did too. And when you grow up that way, you experience those stories a little bit differently because the bottom line is, you know the end, right? Not only have you heard this story before, but you know the stories around it and you know the characters and you know what they do in other situations. And so whenever you hear the narrative of this particular story in scripture, instead of being drawn in by the drama or wondering what's going to happen next, you, you hear the story as an insider. You already know the scoop. You already know the moral of the story. You've probably heard 10 sermons on it. One of the consequences of this, at least for me, is that I always kind of thought the disciples were idiots. Did you ever think that? I mean, how on earth could they be literally following Jesus around, hanging out with him, seeing him heal people, hearing him teach, and still say the things they said or do some of the things they did? 
I would imagine to myself how great it would be, how great it would have been to be there in Palestine in the first century with Jesus and follow him around and how I would certainly have responded better than the disciples did. Of course, that's the thinking error that comes from already knowing the story. The disciples didn't know the ending. They weren't idiots. And when we think they were acting like idiots, more often than not, we're revealing something about ourselves. Now, one of those moments where the disciples blew it is told in Matthew's Gospel. It's in chapter 16. You can read it for yourself, verses 21 to 28. I'll put links in the show notes. Jesus tells his disciples in this scene that he's headed to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he's going to experience great suffering at the hands of the people in charge. He's going to die, and then on the third day, rise again. And then Peter, always ready to jump in with both feet, reacts and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you. Now, 2,000 years later, we already know the story, right? We know this all has to happen. We know it's going to happen. We know that Jesus gets crucified, and then there's the resurrection and the birth of the church, and eventually that leads to things like amazing grace and oceans. We know all of that, so Peter's response seems really dumb, but it's not dumb. What Jesus was saying made no sense to Peter, because Peter's idea of God and God's work was built around power. And for Peter and everyone else in the first century, if God is all about power, then what Jesus was suggesting, it made no sense. This passage, I think, is a crucial window into God's character for us. I mean, the way of Jesus is different from what we would do if we were in charge. If you're a Christian in 2020, particularly in America, particularly if you wear the label evangelical Christian, you need to hear this. See, immediately before this conversation, Jesus had asked the disciples about his identity. Who do people say that I am? That's the question he asked. And they talked a bit about the rumors they were hearing, and then Jesus turned the question on them and said, who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter makes this declaration that he believes Jesus is God's anointed. The, the Greek word is Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, God's anointed one. Now, this is a big deal. It's a turning point in the narrative of Matthew's gospel. Peter's saying that he doesn't believe Jesus is just an interesting teacher with some great ideas. Peter is saying he believes God is at work in Jesus in a unique and powerful way. This is what we got to catch. Messiah, it's one of those words that is nearly impossible for us to understand correctly because we know the end of the story, right? We know from the Christian point of view that Jesus is the Messiah, and we have a whole backpack full of theological explanations for what that means. We know about the cross and resurrection and salvation and, and all the stuff that goes around that, and these ideas are packed inside the concept of Messiah for us. But that is not what the word meant for Peter. For Peter, the word meant God's anointed, and, and that meant God's special chosen agent who would enact God's will for God's people. In the Hebrew scriptures, what we sometimes unhelpfully call the Old Testament, the word Messiah is used to refer to lots of different people. Kings, a high priest, at one point even Cyrus the Great, the tyrannical emperor of Persia, not a good guy, is referred to as a Messiah. In Peter's mind, a Messiah was a person God had chosen in order to use their power to bring about God's will. So Peter believes Jesus is the Messiah. Yep, that's great, but Peter's idea of what a Messiah is doesn't align with Jesus' idea. 
And we know this because Jesus immediately sets out to correct this wrong idea. The passage that I told you about where Jesus tells them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to experience great suffering and he's going to die, that passage begins with the phrase, from that time on. See, from that moment, from the moment Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah, from that time on, Jesus began to tell the disciples what being Messiah meant to Jesus. And so in short order, we hear Jesus say things describing his path that are kind of unexpected. Things like, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Deny, that's, that's the opposite of taking up power. And then, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Jesus was not saying, come on guys, just bear up under the irritation of being made fun of because you're Christian. No! Jesus was literally walking to Jerusalem to be crucified. When he said that, he's inviting his disciples to give up their lives. And then he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. And then what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Hey, Christians, are, are we listening to this? Jesus was teaching his followers that his way, his path, is not the path of power. And that is why Peter rebuked Jesus. When Jesus says, yep, I'm the Messiah, and now that you know that, let me tell you, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die, Peter jumps in and says, no, 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 that's not how it's done. You are God's chosen instrument. You are supposed to bring about God's will by the exercise of power. And in response to that, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I always thought that Jesus was being a little harsh here. Calling Peter Satan, that's not called for. But now I think this moment is less harsh than the English translation suggests. See, in the Greek, the word Satan just means accuser or condemner or tempter. So when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's not rejecting Peter and calling him satanic. He's saying, stop tempting me. That's not how I work. Get out of my way with your agenda and walk behind me. Get in my path. Peter, you're running ahead of me and you have no idea where I'm going. We're not on that path. Get behind me so you can follow me. So if you believe in me, like you just said you did, then you need to let me lead you. You need to learn my way. Then Jesus says that Peter's focusing on human concerns, not God's concerns. Christians, especially Christians in America right now, in October of 2020, we need to pay attention to this, okay? Peter rebukes Jesus because in Peter's mind, crucifixion didn't have any place in God's will. Peter wanted a Messiah who would enact God's will through power, don't we all? But Jesus was coming to enact God's will through crucifixion, resurrection, reconciliation. And this is where human concerns and God's concerns part ways. Whenever we, followers of Jesus, have the opportunity to bring about God's will, we always run the risk of trying to do it through the means of power. It's what, it's what we know. It's what humans do. And church history is full of well-intentioned humans and, and some not well-intentioned humans falling into this same temptation. Sometime in the third century, some Christians wondered, Shall we stick with meeting in homes and small groups in public marketplaces, or shall we move into these new basilicas that Constantine is providing for us? 
will certainly reach a lot more people in these fantastic, expensive new buildings, won't having power serve the gospel? Over and over across the centuries, Christian folks have thought the same way. We could sure end persecution, that would be great, and then we could reach more people if we could convince the king to make Christianity a protected religion. Won't, won't having a little bit of power serve God's purposes? Martin Luther, one of the luminaries of the Reformation, one of the most influential Christian theologians in the Western Church, thought, well, I could sure spread the gospel of grace better if I could get all these German nobles to protect me and my followers with their soldiers. And then he got that and thought, couldn't we spread Christianity even better if we could just make all these Jews go away? Can you see the thinking errors? The idea that we could use power to enforce what we think is God's will and how that ends up in disaster? The English Puritan leaders in the 1700s thought, we sure would love freedom to practice our religion. We're sick of all these other Christians passing laws that limit our rights. Wouldn't it be great if we could go somewhere else, just say, found a whole new country with a new, a new government where our religious practices were protected? So they did exactly that, and then they had the power, and well, it turns out that the religious liberties that they wanted to try out included the freedom to force other people, like the native people to practice their form of Christianity or face persecution, or the religious freedom to own slaves. After all, would not all just be the power to enable them to fulfill God's will? The Moral Majority Organization in the U.S. in the 80s was built on the same mindset. Let's get lots of Christians elected to Congress and, and get a lot of Christian judges on the federal bench. Then power will be on our side, and we can protect Christian culture. Friends, at this very moment, as I'm recording this, we here in America are up to our eyeballs in what is the most divisive presidential election in my lifetime, and we're fighting the exact same temptation. Couldn't we just get God's will done better if we could make the laws? I mean, wouldn't the world be a better place if our religion was privileged? and protected. In this passage, Peter expected the Messiah to enact God's will through power, and Jesus rejected that. To Peter, and then throughout history, Jesus just keeps saying, follow me into crucifixion. That's how we get to resurrection, and that's how we get to reconciliation. And we keep saying right along with Peter, oh, no, 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 Jesus, that's, that's not the way. We can do all that stuff that you said. We can do all that. We can guarantee peace and holiness, and we can protect Christian worship if we can be the strong ones, you know, the ones in charge. If we can make the laws and if we can carry the guns, why, everything will be just fine. When we say that, when we think that way, when we vote, with that end in mind, I suspect that Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. Stop tempting people to that path. Fall in line with me. Learn from me the way of bringing peace. It has nothing to do with power and everything to do with other-centered, co-suffering love. Christians have always wanted to see a world where God's glorified, right? We want to see people come to know God through Jesus. 
And so when we read scriptures that talk about the time at the end of time when, quote, every knee will bow, unquote, we get excited about that picture, but it seems like for some of us that picture is a moment of ultimate power, right? The final complete surrender of a defeated enemy force, people bowing because they have literally no choice. But that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way Jesus ever did anything in his ministry. The way of Jesus is love, walking through crucifixion, into resurrection, and on to reconciliation. When knees bow around Jesus, it is not the result of force. It is in response to unimaginable love. Christians, my family, we need to let go of our lust for power. We need to stop fighting for our rights at the expense of other people. We need to walk the way of Jesus. How else can we call ourselves his followers? The Apostle Paul eloquently described this in his letter to the Philippians. This is chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. I'm just going to read this to you. Listen to this charge. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May you have the courage to let go of the pursuit of power for you or your church, to use what you've been given to serve others, to use your privilege to bring more people to the table, to use your vote to speak for those our society considers least. May you follow the peaceful path of Jesus into other-centered, co-suffering love. Thanks for listening. You'll find the show notes for today's episode and any links I mentioned at markallenshelsky.com forward slash TAW038. Join my email list, won't you? Twice a month emails, links to my writing and other things that will serve your journey. You get a free short book called The Anchor Prayer about a spiritual practice that's made a huge difference for me. I'll never spam you. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss anything. And if you like what you're hearing here, would you do me a big favor? Would you please subscribe on YouTube? I'm making a push to get 500 subscribers on YouTube by the end of the year. YouTube is the second largest search engine on the internet, and when people want to learn something, YouTube is often the first place they go. I wanna be able to reach people there too. When you like and subscribe videos on YouTube, it tells YouTube's algorithm that people like you might like this podcast, and that is how it gets served up as a recommendation to other people. So would you please subscribe? A huge gift to me, 
a gift to those people who find the podcast in the future. Thank you so much. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.